presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright. I'm chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute and your host today. The Free Enterprise Report and the annual Free Enterprise Summit is the capstone of CSI's research year. It's an opportunity for CSI to really highlight its research accomplishments and bring attention to how our state's economic policies are either helping or hurting through our new competitive index. Here to talk with me today about the index and the report is Dr. Stephen Byers, Senior Economist with CSI Colorado and Chief Architect of the Competitiveness Index and Glenn Farley, CSI, Arizona's Director of Policy and Research. Glenn, together with his team in Arizona, authored that state's first ever free enterprise report. Our special guest today is a co-author of the Colorado Free Enterprise Report, Lang Sias. He's a former state legislator, attorney, and a Navy International Guard. And he's, a, for those of you who like to know, a top gun. And as far as his experience in the state legislature, we go back to 2015, 2019. He represented the House District 27. Lang, along with his public service, has an educational background, as I mentioned, as an attorney, but he also attended the London School of Economics, where he has his master's degree. Lang, it's great to have you aboard with us today, along with Glenn and Stephen. And let me get into the Free Enterprise Report examines the state's economic performance for free market per perspective across eight policy areas, education, energy, healthcare, housing, infrastructure, public safety, state budget, state taxes, and fees. Between CSI's past research and objective independently sourced hard data, we can tie policy choices to economic outcomes. I'm not aware of anything that's been done in the country that talks about the competitive index that tries to score the states and the comp competition, but also within the states from a score of one to five, one being the poorest performers in the country to five amongst the best and trying to tell us how well are we doing competitively or relatively to the other states in the United States along with the District of Columbia. In turn, we hope this helps better tie the decisions within our state and local level to real world outcomes and better form us all with regards, with regards to the decisions that we have to make in this upcoming year. Stephen, while Free Enterprise Report has been an annual exercise in Colorado, for some time now, you devised and designed the Competitive Index, which had an inaugural debate in both Arizona and Colorado last month. And I know we talked about this, and you spent a considerable amount of time putting this together. Briefly walk us through what the index does and how it helps anchor CSI's other research work. Okay, thank you, Earl. I'd like to give the motivation for this uh, index to begin with. Politicians and economists often assess a state's economy through data and statistics on GDP, employment, inflation, household income, wages, etc. These data offer information about how the state's free enterprise system is doing over time, but say nothing about the more important question, how is Colorado's free enterprise system performing relative to its competition? The report analyzes the state on two quantitative measures, relative economic performance 
and competitiveness in eight policy areas, education, energy, healthcare, housing, infrastructure, public safety, state budget, and taxes and fees. The quantitative approach to assess each state's economic performance relative to all their states and the District of Columbia includes the following metrics, net business creation per capita, net interstate migration, inequality as measured by the Gini coefficient, the percentage of all people of all ages in poverty, medium household income, GDP per capita, and the labor force participation rates for ages 18 to 64. The 2024 Free Enterprise Report is based on the same eight policy areas as the two previous reports. However, a new quantitative approach was developed to assess Colorado's competitive performance relative to these 49 other states in the District of Columbia. Within each competitiveness policy area, there are multiple metrics used to assess relative performance. The number of metrics varies in each policy area. For instance, energy has 10 metrics, healthcare has four, public safety six, while taxes and fees has only three. Okay, I want to make certain we all understand the effort to make this a statistically significant index. You've actually taken, do I have as correct, 12 years of history with the specific criteria that you've created here uh, as far as developing this? Uh, yes, and a lot of the the time period was really a function of the availability of data that we're using in the index, uh, particularly the census data. Uh, so 2011 was our starting year. Okay, so this is not something that you just kind of popped together with three years of data. You've got you know well over a decade you're talking about. In all of these areas, the energy with its 10 metrics, healthcare with its four, and safety with this six. All right. I mentioned at the outset that the index scores each state from one to five across eight policy areas and then gives an aggregate score with one being the worst and five the best. Glenn, how did Arizona do? And what insights do you see in these results that you can give us and share with us? Happy to answer that question. You know, for me, this was particularly exciting because the index itself is new, but my work with CSI and CSI Arizona are also new. The office has been open for about a year, but my work in Arizona on the, the Arizona economy is not new. We've been working on the state's economy for about a decade. So I was fascinated to see how we shook out in the competitiveness index and what that told me about whether our work was effective or not. And the first thing is, the direct answer to the question is, Arizona gets a three out of five. So we're roughly in the middle of the pack amongst all the states. But more interesting to me, and this is something that you and Stephen just talked about, is the course of Arizona's performance over that last 10 plus years of data that Stephen was able to pull. For context, in 2011, the earliest year for which we have data, Arizona was a one out of five. This was post-Great Recession, which for those of you that recall, the Great Recession was hard nationally, but especially hard in Arizona. So Arizona, out of that Great Recession, was performing relatively poorly compared to its peers. A decade of deliberate policy choices appears to have changed the course of those outcomes, really improved the state's performance. We actually peaked at a four out of five in 2021. We've since fallen back to about a three out of five, but certainly we're in a much stronger and more competitive position today than we were in 2011. In terms of what's holding us back, two areas we score relatively poorly on that I want to highlight, housing and education. Housing costs have risen extremely rapidly in Arizona since 2020. In some ways, we're victims of our own success. Rapid growth recently has outpaced the supply of housing, and the result is rising housing costs. So that wasn't terribly surprising. Education, here too, we perform relatively low, but I actually see the outcome here as extremely positive. I think there's opportunities for improvement in the future thanks to recent policy changes. 
What's holding us back is our graduation rates and our test scores in particular. Areas we do very, very well, um, and they're pulling our score up and help fuel that improvement we've seen over the last decade. And again, this will probably be no surprise to folks familiar with policies in Arizona. It's the state budget and our tax and fee structure. You know, the budget is balanced today. It's been balanced for the first time since the Great Recession for about the past five years. And our tax and fee structure is the lowest it's been since before the Great Recession, culminating most recently in a 2.5% flat individual income tax. So we get five out of fives in both of those, which help pull us up. But I want to go back and just, I, I'm repeating what you said because I'm astounded. You were at a one level coming out of the Great Recession, 08, 09, and you got up, uh, I guess, two or three years ago to a five, and now you're back to a three. Um, that raises the obvious question. Uh, what what happened for the for you in the last couple of years or three years to move from a five to a three? And further, if you could, while you, after you answer that question, give me a little bit of insight of what you're trying to do in the educational arena to improve there and the actions that have been taken and, and how you might be, I guess, optimistic if possible, uh, what could happen in the education arena? Because we're all saying, hey, education is our future in the United States. So please. Yeah, no, both both are great questions. So let me take the, the first one first. Um, we did fall from a four to a three, not quite a five to a three, but your question was, what do I think, looking at the index data, is the cause of that? And I alluded to one in my first answer, housing. The other, I think, is public safety and homelessness issues. All of these really have their roots, Earl, in the pandemic and the policy responses to the pandemic nationally, not just in Arizona. But, you know, Arizona's policy choices relative to some of our neighbors like California meant that we had a lot of people moving into Arizona. We've had the fastest rate of growth due to in-migration in this state that we've had since the Great Recession over the past couple of years. And that rapid in-migration is good from a lot of perspectives. I think it reflects well on, on Arizona's decisions recently, but it also puts pressures on us, puts pressures on our housing markets, our public safety and homelessness markets, things like that. And so those pressures have brought us down recently. And that's what I mean when I said on the first question that we're kind of victims of our own success. On the education front, the question, I think, is why, when we score relatively poorly in education, do I have this positive outlook? And the answer there really is school choice. Arizona's always been an innovator in the school choice arena, but school choice has never been particularly popular with the public. It's always been kind of a niche. Uh, that changed, again, from an after 2020 with the pandemic. We saw an explosion in homeschooling, private and alternative schooling from an after 2020, Arizona followed that trend with university essays, which allows public funding to follow students as they exit public systems and enter private systems. I think that kind of injection of competition is going to bring up sort of that rising tide lifts all boats principle. It's going to bring up those graduation rates and test scores system-wide, not just amongst the private homeschoolers, but sort of system-wide. But I think it's gonna take time for those results to materialize. As I remember uh, other research reports out of Arizona, Glenn, you have a fluidity now that you did not have as far as kids having a choice to the schools they could go to versus the neighborhood school. So if the neighborhood school is just actually not performing very well for whatever reason, these dollars uh, flow with the student to go to the school that they find that really fits well with who they are so that the kids and parents can feel comfortable. There's a higher level of success or, or if I kind of not quite understood the study and what, what's being accomplished. 
No, uh, you're 100% right. And we've put out numerous reports on this, but to sort of summarize what the landscape after the pandemic and after 2022 looks like in Arizona, we have open enrollment. So any student anywhere in the state may attend any district school of their choice. We have open charter schools. Anyone may found a charter school without permission from a district or, or any licensing body. We have the Universal ESA program, which is new since 2022. And we have uh, an STO program, which is like a, a private program funded with tax credit dollars for private school scholarships. So there's tons of choice options. As a result, 20 plus percent of students in the state are outside of the traditional public system. And I really see that growing in the next couple of years as these choice options continue to grow. Stephen and Lang, I'll let the two of you try to handle this question. And I think it's enough here that the two of you will probably be needed. I'd like you to share with us, if you would, the performance rating in Colorado and what insights that does it give you with regards to how you see the future in Colorado uh, with regards to what's, where we are right now? Uh, I'll just make one quick statement and then pass it to Lang. Our overall competitiveness, we rank three out of five, and our outlook, outlook is neutral. Colorado has been in the third quintile from 2011 to 2023 for the, the entire period. It's not clear where we'll be going uh, going forward, but some of the negative competitiveness trends lead me to believe that Colorado's overall economic competitiveness and economic performance will decline in the future. I'll Lang pass it to you. Well, that's really a great lead in the negative trend. So now you're passing it to Lang to explain where we are and, and how we've got problems. <laughs> okay, yep. Lang, go ahead. Well, I'll, uh, there's a there's an awful lot to, to unpack here, um, but I will highlight three areas where we're, which were areas of special concern to us in the in the report. And those are education, public safety, and housing. And I'll just spend a couple of minutes chatting about those, if that's if that's okay. In education, we had a we have a show a performance score of four, which is the second quintile with a neutral outlook. So on the surface, that looks fairly encouraging. But as you start to unpack that, there are some things that that really concern us. Um, first of all, the rank our rank dropped from 2014 to to 2023 um, from ninth all the way down to 20th. So we're just clinging to the to that uh, uh, we're just clinging to that ranking. Um, our graduation rates, which have been a persistent problem for us, we rank 46th nationally in graduation rates. Also, at a at a time when our funding has increased significantly over the last 10 years and our per pupil education spending is at an all time high, we rank 49th nationally in the percentage of education dollars that are actually going to the, to the classroom. And that's a drop of 12 in that ranking. And so that is one of our, one of our big concerns going forward is trying to assure that the dollars that are being spent are actually going to the classroom, to teachers and to improving student outcomes. And that's why the outlook, even though the spending spending has come up significantly, that's why our outlook is neutral for it for education. I'll also wait, 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 Lang. I want to stop you there. Sure. I want to make certain it's clear to all everybody here. What I heard you saying is that the dollars going into education, which I hear all the legislators talk about all the time, right. are, is increasing. It's increased dramatically the last decade. But what I just heard you saying 
that the dollars may be going up into education, but how those dollars are being used has not put us at very high ranking. Could you give us a little, maybe it's a repeat, but is that correct? And could you give us a little more flavor there? Yes, sir. That is the issue. It's where are the dollars actually being spent? And there's some, I'll give a shout out here to Jason Golden, who's our, our education fellow, who's done some great work on this in looking at dollars and, and data and how the money's being spent. One of these statistics that he looked at, and I think I have this right in my frontal lobe, is during a period when per pupil spending went up 45%, teacher salaries went up 26 or 27%. And you've seen, and this is not uncommon nationally, but you've seen uh, a tremendous growth in administrative spending, administrative headcount, and administrative costs without any appreciable increase in student outcomes. And so tracking how those dollars are being spent and trying to assure that the dollars that are being spent are actually producing improvements in student outcomes, uh, we feel is, is an important priority. And by the metric that we looked at here, we've dropped 12 spots nationally in the percentage of our education dollars that are actually being spent in the classroom. So we feel this is a very, very important point. And it's it's true in education, certainly, but it's not. It's also true in other areas of spending is we tend to assess ourselves and how well we're doing based on how much money we're spending in particular areas we do a pretty poor job of tracking how those dollars are spent and whether the results we're getting are actually achieving the stated objectives of the spending. Hey, I, you know, I, I'm going to go a little off script here. And, and I know I asked you about Colorado Lang. I want you to come back to Colorado again. But uh, Glenn, uh, Arizona is 36th in the country when it comes to the scoring that we have here on education. Do you have the same problem in Arizona with regards to the use of funds? Uh, that we have in Colorado. Well, I'm actually glad that you you went off script and came to me because I had to chuckle hearing Lang describe the situation in the Colorado and and in some ways this doesn't surprise me at all just knowing how things have worked in Arizona since 2020 and kind of hearing about how they've worked nationally. But for context, Arizona's per pupil K-12 funding over the past five years is up about 45 percent, which I think is more or less exactly the same as the increase in Colorado, which I think is is funny and not as big a coincidence as you might assume. Uh, the other interesting thing is our performance. So, so performance, at least as measured in the NAEP scores, is down about 5% from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. And that may not sound like a big drop, but on a sort of historical basis, it's one of, if not the largest, drops in scores ever recorded in the NAEPs. So you have this very large disconnect between resources, a massive injection of resources in Arizona and nationally in K-12, public K-12 funding over the past five years versus outcomes, massive declines in outcomes over the past five years. And I think it's never been more plain how little connection there is between funding, either across the states or within the states and the educational outcomes. What that means for K-12 policy going forward is the open question. Blank, I interrupted you. Please, if, uh, if you want, if you can continue, please do on, uh, on the outcomes sure, well, of Colorado. Sure, I, I think that's... Uh... I, I think those are really, really important points and how we go about tracking how these dollars are being spent and how we go about trying to assure that we get better student outcomes, I think is one of the major challenges that we're going to face going forward, particularly if we see these budgets start to be constrained in ways that they haven't been over the last uh, se over the last several years. 
you had asked about the other policy areas that we were concerned about. We can certainly come back to education, but I want to touch on the on the couple of the others that I mentioned. One of them was public was public safety, where Colorado now has a performance score of two, so not looking very good there, and with a neutral outlook. And I'll flesh that out a little bit for you. Our crime rate ranking fell uh, from 20th nationally in 2011 all the way down to 37th in 2023, and that reflected some very alarming trends in retail theft, in violent crime, and in auto theft. Um, we have seen uh, in, in this area an increase in spending, but it is one of those areas where spending, again, doesn't necessarily guarantee better outcomes. So for example, uh, there is an effort with spending behind it to increase our number of police per, per resident, but we are still having a difficult time attracting officers because of the issue of qualified immunity, because officers, people are just not going to come and work in, de in departments where they're exposed to downside risk that they just feel is unreasonable. So without reform in that no, area... No, wait, 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 wait. What is that downside risk all of a sudden that maybe is hurting our recruiting? Can you give us a little bit more well, on that? Well, if, if officers are individually exposed to liability in ways that they weren't previously exposed to, uh, they're quite naturally going to gravitate towards departments where that isn't the case. And so that is an issue in Colorado that is, by our analysis, one of the things that's standing in the way of improving our ratio. Our number of police per resident has, has declined despite increases in funding. On the upside, we have seen uh, legislation, and again, a shout out to our CSI fellows for great work in this, but we've seen legislation in the last 18 months to address auto theft, retail theft, and fentanyl use. But those, like some of the efforts in education, take time to actually produce results. And again, this accounts for the neutral outlook. We've seen some positive changes in, in the legislative area. We're also seeing uh, some positives in funding. But until we address some of these underlying issues, um, specifically the qualified immunity, um, we feel the progress is going to be slow. And again, our fellows, who include the former Denver Chief of Police, Paul Pazin, have been very critical of some of the actions taken at the state legislative level and at the city council level that they believe underlay some of the increases in uh, auto theft, retail theft, and violent crime. Well, wait, I, I see you've got a ranking here of neutral. From what I just heard you say, uh, I would put that a doggone big negative, but there must be something in you, that you see that would make it ne a neutral versus negative. What, what is it that has you a little bit more optimistic than I might be? Uh, the two things would be the fund would be increased funding, and second of all, the legislation that was passed to address ah. auto theft, retail theft, and and fentanyl use. And Stephen, you may have some some other input on this, but that's how uh, that's how we balance those out. More of that might happen legislatively in light of the uh, priorities for the legislature this year. Yes, sir. And I think I think one of the themes from this overall report is that color we the report positions Colorado really at an inflection point. And so many of the outlooks are neutral because they will depend on the direction that the legislature, state legislature in particular, goes over the next few years. 
And, and so that outlook could turn in one direction or another based on what we, on what we see over the next couple of legislative sessions. Stephen, do you well, have any? I'm gonna, I'm gonna once again in, in, interrupt, and Steve, please j- jump in if you like. On public safety, you know, you've talked about we're 31st uh, comparatively in the study, but Arizona, you're 48th as far as ranking goes in the country. Are you, what kind of actions are taken in Arizona that maybe can uh, suggest that that 48th ranking is going to improve? Well, I, I actually have that negative outlook that you were looking for in Colorado on Arizona. So not only are we already one out of five, but but I, uh, we've given it sort of a subjective negative call. And the question you're going to ask me is why? And the answer is we're facing a lot of the same problems that it sounds like Colorado is facing. And, and I'll even zero down more so into what I think is a root cause, and that's the fentanyl crisis. The opioid crisis, which has been with us for a long time, has transformed in the past, let's say, seven years or so into a fentanyl crisis. And that was really in response, I think, to two things, a crackdown on prescription drugs, coupled with sort of the collapse in order on the southern border. Arizona is a border state, unlike Colorado. And so the result of that is, is as long as it's easy to move fentanyl into the United States from Mexico, Arizona policymakers are sort of in a box. And and I think the results of that are plain in sort of the crime rates, the fentanyl abuse rates and other things. So I think we're less able to respond quickly and adeptly with state level policy changes to fix this. And that's why I sort of have that negative outlook until things get get under control on the Arizona southern border and that flow of fentanyl slows down. I think you're going to continue to see major public safety implications. Stephen, do you want to say anything with regards to public safety? Well, I'm I'm interested in hearing from Glenn because they are in a border state and the border is in the news all the time, whether how much can the state do to uh, rectify this problem versus does it really going to be reliant on federal policy? We actually put a report out, Stephen, that I think you saw, but I think it's worth uh, reminding folks of. It's about a year old now that looked at Arizona's southern border and the flow of drugs across it specifically, but I highlighted in that report that it's really novel for states even to try, right? Arizona tried under former Governor Doug Ducey to erect physical barriers along the southern border. Texas Governor Abbott is in real time continuing to try and erect physical barriers. And there's ongoing fights with the federal government on what they can do there. But it's really novel territory. So states are trying, but traditionally, legally, for all practical intents and purposes, this has been a federal responsibility. And so the state efforts aren't going to be nearly as effective, I think, as what federal efforts could be. But the longer this goes on, I think the better the states will get at it, sort of for better or for worse, if that makes sense. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. It's a a vexing problem, and Arizona's uniqueness, you've certainly pointed out with regards to it, and thank you. However, I'm not going to let the two of you off the hook here. Lang, housing, you were going to talk about housing, and our housing, we're the worst in the country, even behind D.C. Come on. We're 51st, which made me think, well... We can't be that bad, but uh, don't get too comfortable, uh, Glenn. You're 46th in Arizona. So the point I have is, hey, what's going on, Lang, Glenn, and your respective states, and what's being done to resolve it, if anything? From Colorado's standpoint, yes, it's uh, we're number one, but we're number one in being least affordable in the country. So that's not, that's not a place you want to be. And I think similar to what Arizona has faced, we are to some extent a victim of our own success because part of what has driven up the cost has been 
that over the decade or decade decade and a half preceding the pandemic, Colorado was a very popular place to to move to. And so that plus inflation has driven up prices and the supply just has not has not kept up. But there are some other things going on here. One is that Unlike in Arizona, Colorado has seen a real drop off in net inward migration over the last over the last couple of years. And that's distinguished from what we see in Arizona and what we see in in one of our other peer competitor states, Utah. And so that is something that we have to keep a very, very close eye on. It may have relieved the pressure some slightly on housing demand, but a continuing drop off in net inward migration would have a very big impact for our economy. Um, in all sorts of negative ways. The reason that we have an outlook that is negative here as well is that uh, we just have not seen any systemic improvements in the areas of reform that we believe you'd need in order to relieve some of this pressure on uh, on housing and see some increased development. For example, no system-wide changes to unlock our housing supplies in the in the area of land use of permitting, of streamlining of our of our business codes. In fact, we've made them more complicated or of addressing the construction liability costs, uh, which which impact our costs in the condominium area, which is very important because it's a often the the first form of of housing that people will actually purchase and start that process of of, of building equity. Um, and we're relatively pessimistic about the prospect for change in that area, um, quite simply because of the the lobbying power of the the trial lawyers uh, in in the state of Colorado here, who traditionally have resisted efforts to to reform the construction lot to, to permit reform in the area of construction liability. So that's why I hope I've answered your question. Why we have both. Uh, very high housing costs and also a negative outlook. Well, I want to contribute to the positive side of your answer is that I can t- uh, tell you that without the housing report that we did and uh, pointing out the condos, uh, just re- yes, amazing. I mean, you destroyed the condo uh, industry if there was such an industry. And the second, the, but the positive side of what you've maybe come up with is that legislative, you've got two very strong representatives down at the down at the legislature that it's decided to take this on and figure out how do we begin to answer the question with litigation on condo construction. So thanks to your report, Lang, and uh, Peter's uh, report on housing and the housing shortage and affordability, it looks like at least the legislature is going to, two very strong people, try to take it under under tow this year. I think and and I think that's I think Peter's report is incredibly important. I mean, out of that came a uh, a very strong editorial from the from the Denver Post calling for reform in that area and it was based on on Peter's great work. I am very glad that there's some folks in the legislature that are going to take that up. They will be facing some difficult opposition, and it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Glenn, uh, I don't think there's anything positive here. You're 46, and you, what kind of, we all know, you know, 46 is 46. What are you doing about it? What is uh, being done in the state to hopefully correct this? Circling back on the housing, I'll, I'll echo first in terms of causes, a lot of what Lang already said is very similar in Arizona. The timing maybe just shifted forward a couple of years, but really since 2020, population growth, extremely rapid. 
There was a demand shift. We all remember the pandemic, the associated lockdowns and stay-at-home orders. There was this demand for more and nicer housing by people suddenly spending a lot more time in it, right? And so you had these very rapid price increases. So, so what has happened, Earl, has happened very rapidly and suddenly, where Arizona has shifted from relatively affordable to one of the most expensive, at least in its major cities, one of the most expensive places in the country. The good news is, though, that rapid shift has come to an end, right? Uh, the rapid price appreciation is no longer occurring. Prices have been basically flat for the last year. Interest rates at the same time seem to have peaked late last year and are falling and projected to continue falling in the near future. So the combination of those two things, flat prices, declining interest rates, coupled with rising incomes, right? People's incomes are still rising um, due to wage pressures and things like that, means that housing is just naturally going to become more affordable in Arizona over the next couple of years. And so we do have a positive outlook, but it's largely driven by natural economic cycles, not so much policy changes. But your question was, what policy changes have policymakers made? And the answer is, they haven't really done much. They've they've uh, spent some money on affordable housing, which is sort of the easiest thing to do, but arguably the least effective. There were some efforts to do zoning and litigation reform at the state legislature last year. Nothing substantial made it out. I've heard they'll try again this year. Remains to be seen whether they'll actually accomplish anything substantial there. There's lots of politics at play. But the good news is Arizona is already a relatively competitive, relatively liberal housing market. The worst thing they could do is make things worse, right? And so far, we haven't seen that. This is the first time uh, that, that, that you've had a chance to see this report and be involved in this report. And uh, what were some of the surprising results uh, as you reviewed the index and worked on the report? Uh, or were you surprised at all? Yeah, no, good question. We've talked a lot about education, housing, and public safety. So surprising or not, I'll skip those, but maybe let's zero in on state budget and taxes and fees section. And this is interesting because we got a five out of five in both. Neither of those results surprised me at all. As someone who came from state budgeting in my prior career, I'm very familiar with, with how disciplined the budgeting process historically has been in the state. But what is surprising I think for some folks is the negative outlook we have on the state's budget rating. And what's driving that is how rapidly conditions have changed. So, so the fiscal discipline was really imposed on state policymakers by fiscal reality. There wasn't that much money to spend, and so they didn't spend that much money. Since the pandemic, though, state revenue growth has been rapid. And policymakers initially were slow to respond to that rapid revenue growth by letting spending grow rapidly. That discipline sort of went out the window in the last two budgets. We just released a report on this. You may have seen, Earl. But for context, the state budget has grown about 40% in 18 months. That can't continue. Indeed, uh, they're already projecting their first fiscal deficit since 2016 in Arizona. So, so they couldn't afford to continue it even if they wanted to continue it. The question is, how are they going to respond? Can they get back to the disciplined ways of budgeting or not? Recent history suggests it's going to be a hard transition for them. And so that's why I have what may be surprising for some folks, a negative outlook on the state budget in the near future. To help me out, uh, what is the budget two years ago, three years ago, you had a surplus? Do I remember that correctly? Not only do we have a surplus, we had, you know, for context, the state budget, let's call it $15 billion uh, a year the state general fund spends. Our surplus three years ago was four and a half, almost $5 billion dollars cash in the bank. Our surplus projected going into this year 
was $10 million. So they managed to take a $5 billion surplus and reduce that to zero in two budgets. Now, updated projections have revised that $10 million projected surplus to a $400 million projected deficit. Uh, and so that shows you what I mean when I say things can change rapidly, especially if you let the spending side change rapidly, which is what they did. That's quite a change in a short period of time. Lang, uh, same question to you. What in doing in this study, what uh, results surprised you as you reviewed the index uh, and worked on it? Um, and what didn't surprise you? But first of all, what surprised you? Well, I think uh, there were there were a couple of places where you would look and see something if you and I think this points to the importance of these the comparative index here. But there were places where you could look at a piece of data just looking at it, at it in a vacuum for Colorado and say, well, that looks either good or the example I'll use, that looks pretty bad. But then when you looked at how it played out comparatively, it actually helped us nationally or hurt us nationally. So things were working in the opposite direction. I'll give you an example. To go back to education, our students uh, in fourth grade, fourth grade reading and math scores, for example, we have about 40% of our kids, give or take, 40% of our kids who are reading and doing math at grade level, which is a pretty sobering statistic. And yet, that percentage was something that actually boosted us nationally in our education ranking relative to other states. You know, when you look at our, at our score, the score reflects a boost because of that. But then when you look at it in a vacuum, you say that's awfully distressing in terms of how we're preparing our kids for future success. And that wasn't the only example of that sort of of a disconnect, you know, in a vacuum and nationally. But I'll just point to that one. Those were some of the surprises. I do share what Glenn said about the about the budgeting and, and spending and having direct. And there was also an impact of federal dollars coming in one time or short time federal funding that was spent in ways that would require ongoing obligations and how that's going to be resolved going forward is going to be very interesting. What did not surprise me, and it did not surprise any of us, I think, is that the report really showed that policy matters. It really, really matters. We were driven to some of the research that we did based on anecdotal surveys done of some of our business leaders around the state. And so, for example, we learned from in surveys done of our business leaders that they were very concerned about the increasing cost of regulation, specifically in the areas of labor and employment and energy and the environment. So we really attempted to drill down in those areas and do some data-driven analysis and see what that revealed. And sure enough, we saw that increases in regulation in those two areas was over the last several years was imposing future costs of about two billion dollars a year aggregate of two billion dollars a year on our private sector community we also saw that increasing costs of litigation 43 44 bills that had either increased or modified or created new civil causes of action that were going to have costs on private business. Then when we compared some of the policies that we were seeing in Colorado against policies in states where populations were increasing, like Florida and Texas, versus population states where populations were decreasing, 
as New York, Illinois, and California. In a very sobering way, we discovered that the policy directions that we were taking in Colorado more closely resembled those in states that were losing population. And so again, we'll see how this plays out, but the important point here is that policy does matter. And I'll give a shout out to Glenn, because when we looked at how their policy direction over the last few years, as compared to what we've seen in Colorado, had they, uh, had they adopted some of the policies that Colorado did over the last several years, uh, and Glenn, I'll let you speak to this, um, they would have seen some fairly significant negative economic consequences. So policy matters, big, uh, a big important point for us. Glenn, do you want to respond to that before I ask Stephen our final question? Well, no, I appreciate that, Ling, because uh, I love hearing you say policy matters because that's been sort of a theme in Arizona for our research of the past year. And I agree. And and it's uh, heartwarming to hear you say that because what we've tried to really emphasize is, and I mentioned this at the outset on your first question, Earl, you know, the policy choices Arizona made after the Great Recession, culminating with the 2.5% flat tax a couple of years ago, I think have driven the improvement in our score from that one to that peak of a four. But like Colorado, Arizona in many ways is at a crossroads, you know, and the policy choices of the next couple of years could really determine the direction going forward. And it's a mixed outlook, in my humble opinion. Uh, Stephen, just to close out, let's, this is innovative, what you've done, I think, from a state perspective and the competitive index is unique. I don't know that maybe you're aware of some place that's been done before, but my research doesn't suggest we have something that covers the areas that you covered and, and what you've initiated for us. But that's not my question. What, if any changes or improvements to the indices do you foresee in the future free enterprise reports and, and how come? Well, this was our first effort at uh, producing a, a comparative index or a competitive index as such. And um, so I expect there to be improvements in the future, and particularly because we CSI will be in four states now. So we're going to increase, hopefully, our expertise from this, these additional people, particularly in Iowa and uh, Oregon, in addition with Arizona, that they can offer up some new metrics within our policy areas that will capture additional um areas of the economy that we're not currently capturing and that we can also improve uh, what we're capturing and, and how we're doing it. One area where we're going to have an addition uh, that I plan on putting in this year is a new policy area called workforce. We talk about education uh, in the competitive index right now, but we know that the composition of a state's workforce, you know, can give them an advantage in terms of incomes, reducing poverty, et cetera. So that's an area that we're going to uh, definitely add in. All of you, I want to thank you so much for the the thoroughness of your research and the, the willingness to answer kind of a wide range of questions, some of which you were prepared for and some of which you weren't. But thank you so much for uh, today and for the listeners. Uh, you know, Good luck in listening to this, and hopefully you take some of this and talk to your legislators and ask them what they're doing about it and to take some individual action in your communities where it's appropriate. So thank you for listening today. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. 
This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.